Hello, and welcome to the Bread and Butter Bible Podcast. I'm Casey. And I'm Kelsey. And today we are going to be talking about Titus, um, who, as we'll find out, was written by a pretty well-known author of the New Testament. And today we'll just be covering Titus 1, 1 through 2, 10. But before we get started on Titus, we actually wanted to tell you about some of the background of our podcast name. Where did we get our name from? Yes. So Kelsey and I are primarily Bible teachers. We train missionaries to go and teach the Bible. It's a wonderful, wonderful job. Um, And there was one day we were driving down. I think it was to the airport to drop someone off. Might have been. And one of our staff members, um, a very well-entrusted staff member, you'll probably hear more about them at some point, um, she recommended the name of our podcast be Bread and Butter. And do you have anything to say about that, Kelsey? I don't think so. I think it's a great name, though. Yeah. We, We thought it was immediately a great name. The reason that I liked it is because when you think of bread and butter you know it's kind of that's that's a phrase almost people say you know it's bread and butter referring to staples or just things that you need and so i i really feel like the church today needs just the very staples when it comes to the bible Mm -hmm. i've talked to a lot of people at our church and really all over the u.s at least and kind of around the world and a lot of people don't know how to read the bible they don't know what it is um and a lot of people are actually scared of the bible because they feel like the god of the old testament is so different than the god of the new testament Mm -hmm. among many other things um and many denominations throughout church history have been split based on interpretations of the bible Um, so we just think that reading the Bible is actually really simple. It's really, Mm -hmm. really beneficial. And we would like to offer the very staples of Bible study. Yes. Also, our last name is Butterfield, so it just makes sense. Yeah. It's a good name. There's a lot to it. Oh, thanks for saying that's a good name. You, uh, married into it. Yes, I did. Yeah. (laughs) So down to business, Titus chapter 1 through 210. Mm-hmm. So starting a new book here, um, we want to get into the very basics of the book. So what's the background so that we can orient ourselves to how to maybe interpret the book? Um, I think that's always a good idea to just look at the background first. So who wrote the book of Titus? So, like many of the letters that we'll look at, Titus was written by Paul. Okay, so by Paul, and that's the guy who was previously named Saul, and he was persecuting Christians, and then he became a crazy church leader, and he seems to even appoint people to help grow the church. Yeah, we have a few people that show up, like Timothy, who is mentioned in the book that we just looked at, Philemon, 
as being his true child. And Titus, who we'll look at today, is one of his other close people that he raised up in ministry. So in the same sort of category there. Yeah. So Titus is not a book of the Bible, but it's actually a letter. Mm -hmm. And what kind of letter is it? Yeah, so another word for letter would be an epistle. And we obviously call all the different individual books of the Bible books, but they're different types of literature. So an epistle is something that has uh, an introductory part, a body, and a conclusion, perhaps different points that are going to be made or presented. And Titus, as well as other epistles, have a very similar format. And usually they'll go from some sort of theology, so statements that usually Paul, who's typically the author of most of these letters, is going to make. So perhaps he's unpacking what grace means or other different things, and he'll move into how to apply these different things that we're learning as well. Yeah. So actually, what I was asking is, is this letter to a certain kind of audience, a certain person, and as the church called it, a certain kind of epistle. Yes. So same structure as other letters, epistles, but what this specifically is, is a pastoral letter slash epistle. So Titus and the books of First and Second Timothy are known as the pastoral letters. If you looked up in any biblical resource, you would find that in a variety of different things that you can look up. But what that means is these letters have the specific purpose of not just being written to a general audience or even just to a specific church. It's a letter written to a close minister, a person that Paul has risen up, such as Titus and Timothy. So as we're reading these letters, we're not thinking a general church audience. Um, we're not thinking people who have never heard Paul's theology before or what he thinks about grace and your salvation and what it means to walk it out. He's writing a letter talking to people that he personally trained up in ministry. So he's not having to fill in all the blanks and unpack all these ideas for uh, Titus or Timothy. He really gets straight to the point, and we'll see that with Titus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we covered the author and who it was written to and kind of what kind of letter it is. Um, when was this pastoral epistle written? So this would most likely be around 62 AD. So last podcast we covered that Paul had multiple imprisonments. So at the end of Acts, he is pictured as being imprisoned in Rome and he's under house arrest essentially. So he writes quite a few letters from there and it's believed that he was eventually released after two years and this is the point in time that he leaves Titus in Crete and we'll find out Timothy in Ephesus and that is also very closely when these pastoral letters were written including Titus so around 62 AD uh, we call that in between imprisonments so Roman house arrest writing these letters and planting Titus and Timothy in their respective locations and then his final Roman imprisonment afterwards mm -hmm. yeah so after this Paul 
went to his final imprisonment. But even during this time, 62-ish AD, um, the emperor at the time, the emperor of Rome, is Emperor Nero. Yes. And he was quite a crazy guy. It's almost like he wore a lead hat around. Hmm. Um, emperor Nero is famous for starting a fire that burned half of Rome around 64 AD. And then he just blamed it on the Christians. And actually, if you've ever seen Home Alone 1 or 2, you'll see Nero's Pizza. It's a little ode to Nero. Yeah, I think it's a little Nero's Pizza yeah. instead of like Little Caesars, <laughs> what we have today. It's so funny. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the text. Um, I think we have done enough background information. Is there anything else that you want to say? Yeah, just to note on Emperor Nero. So he began his reign in about 54 AD. So most of your New Testament letters, that is the backdrop. You have very severe persecution, blaming on Christians um, that's happening at this point in time. And it was believed that Paul, uh, once we get to 2 Timothy, which Titus was written super closely to, that under Nero's emperorship, you could say, <laughs> is when Paul faced uh, martyrdom at the end of his life. So 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul writes, and Titus comes just before that. So that's the backdrop, and the backdrop of a lot of the letters that you'll see in the New Testament. Yeah. You know, one thing I forgot to ask you, just to give us some direction mm-hmm. for this letter, what is the reason that Paul writes to Titus? Yeah, so going back on the explanation of what pastoral letters are, so he really states it for us quite clearly in 1 verse 5 onward and a few other places, but his reason of writing is giving Titus essentially a commissioning and really clear guidelines of how to bring the church together in a unifying framework to follow sound doctrine and to train up others to do the same thing. And the main idea that comes from that is that sound doctrine comes from, well, sound doctrine and acting it out, actually having good works, comes from a real understanding of the good work that Christ has already done. Uh, By his grace being in us, transforming us, uh, being that salvation that renounces the ungodliness in us. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the connection of the reason written and the main idea And that kind of brings us to the structure of the book before we talk about just a few points that we want to look at in chapters 1 through 2, verse 10. So Paul, in this first part of the text that we'll talk about, he's very instructional. So again, he gets straight to the point. These are not people that he needs to over-explain himself to. That also matches with just the short nature of these letters as well. But the first half of the book that we'll look at today really digs into what it means for the wholeness of the church body, its leaders, as well as the least of these, to exemplify sound doctrine through good works and their their attitudes, their self-control, how they treat one another, how they act, very much on actions in the first half of the book. And the second half, so while other letters go from theology to application, Titus is application to theology. So from 2.11 onward, he tells us how this church can even have the ability to operate in sound doctrine. 
and it's because of the very present grace and hope in Christ that actually trains us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright lives right now. So the only reason that's bringing it to application to us that we can operate in sound doctrine and operate in godliness, do good works, is because of the complete good work that Christ has already done. So we're not doing good works to look better. Um, it's only an outworking of what Christ has already completed. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I think the last thing you said there is really kind of the implication of the main idea. I think the main idea of this book is, you know, found in verses 211 all the way through 13. Um, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Mm-hmm. And in 211, when it says the grace of God has appeared, Paul is writing as if he's personifying grace. Yeah. And he is, actually. That's Jesus. Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation. And this is actually going to be a two-part podcast. Yes. So in the next episode... We'll dig into that. We'll dig into <laughs> this grace appearing and training. Um, but then today, and just, just to recap even, the reason written... So Paul is writing to Titus, who is a young minister, if you will, and Paul wants Titus to set up elders, set up, what, what's the other word? Appoint overseers. elders and overseers in this church in Crete of all places. Mm-hmm. And for those of you, maybe millennials, maybe Gen Xers, even boomers out <laughs> there, you've heard maybe your parents or grandparents call people Cretans as a derogatory term. I don't know if I have heard of that, but I'm a millennial, so probably out of my league, maybe. Also, you grew up in kind Canada. I grew up in a very rural Californian mountain town. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there's some mean Canadians out there, though, you know? It's true. Yeah, but Canadians are all so kind in nature. Um, So Cretans, even today in 2023, wow, I almost said 2022, even today in 2023, uh, the term Cretan still refers to someone who is just profane and kind of crass, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, so the Cretans are addressed in this letter, too, because Titus is living in Crete. Yes. And what Paul does, just to point this out while we have the chance, in uh, this not second, third, fourth paragraph, so in verse 10 onward, if you look at verse 12, he mentions a like Cretan poem or lyric that was very popular in this time. Uh, I think the same author of a quote that's given in Acts 19 when Paul is in Ephesus. He also uh, uses a quote from a Greek philosopher as well. So when it says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That is literally what they said about the Cretan people. Uh, think about Crete as like the Vegas of the time. Or there's really a lot of places in the New Testament that are mentioned like Ephesus or Rome, the capital itself, uh, that would be very similar in nature. But Crete was a all things are okay Anything goes, be wild, crazy, violent, exercise, no self-control 
kind of society. So there's no short change here of what it was actually like to be there. And the instructions that Paul's giving them, they might not sound that difficult to do. Like, you know, just don't be violent if you're an overseer or an elder. Well, culturally, that was very much normal, actually. Violence. Yep. Violence, uh, being drunkards all the time, greedy for gain, all these different awful characteristics. So the place of Crete was not a very nice place to be, and it was absolutely somewhere where the gospel could truly transform the culture that it was in, and that people there accepting Christ would transform the world around them by it. So the church has a huge opportunity here to see Christ, to see the gospel really transform a society. Yeah. All right. So I think we're ready to jump into the text now. And before we do right now, Kelsey, can I just have you give one sentence, if you can, (laughs) on what is the main idea? Okay. So to repeat our main idea of just this section or the book, The whole book. The whole book. Okay. Main idea. Sound doctrine and good works are only possible by the grace that has appeared for us in Christ. Okay. And then verse 1-1, Paul says something that sounds super weird. (laughs) He says, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Okay, just rewind there. Who are God's elect? Um, who do you think they are? You're the expert here. <laughs> I am no expert. I've only taught this book. She's but only taught this book like ten times. You whatever, so thank you. Um, God's elect. So in other books like Romans, which is a popular spot to talk about the word election, comes up a lot in different areas of biblical theology. Elect just means chosen. Uh, In Ephesians 1, that's a great passage, not passage, a chapter to go to, but it talks about being chosen, having an inheritance in Christ, having the seal of the Holy Spirit. Elect really just refers to the church in itself. So what Paul's saying is like, for the sake of those who have accepted Christ, for the sake of the church, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And doesn't that just give us a snapshot of what he's going to talk about? That idea of sound doctrine actually is legitimate godly living. Mm-hmm. You can't, if you, if you don't exercise godliness, then you are exercising lies and not truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. If you don't exercise godliness, then you are exercising lies and not truth. And actually, (laughs) moving forward in the text, we see a pretty clear contrast. Um, Paul goes on to explain that God never lies. Mm -hmm. But then in the very next paragraphs, and we'll dive into this a little bit more, um, we see that the Cretans and also the circumcision party seem to be liars or they're teaching for deceitful gain. Greedy for gain. Yeah, greedy. It's just like conniving, deceitful. Oh, man. Um, So God is contrasted to these people, and the godly are like who? 
Uh, the godly, I would think, are described as being like God, like yeah, truth. exactly. So the godly are like truth, but there's not a lot of those here. Um, oh, so no. one thing that I noticed here, we have Paul's introducing this letter, and he says this letter is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So for the sake of the faith of the church, whom God chose, God chose the church, Jew and Gentile at this point in time. So for the sake of the faith of the church and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, verse two, in hope of eternal life. And that, I think, is something to just slow down on and make sure that you at least notice that. So God's church who knows the truth, if, if they know the truth, they're going to accord or they're, they're going to look like godly people mm-hmm. and they're, they are in hope. So this is actually a picture if you will, of just being surrounded by hope. They are inside of hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How crazy. Um, In hope. And, you know, verse two is kind of a wordy verse. It goes on to say, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began at the proper time. This is verse three. And at the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching of, with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior. So that's also what what is happening here in this very first paragraph. It's almost like so wordy, it's hard to understand. Yeah, I think it kind of presents a question, and we discussed this before in verse 3, but he switches to saying, so all those things manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior. What do you think Paul is implying about his preaching, or even how you can imply, apply that to preaching of the word in general? Yeah, I think Paul is talking about preaching of the word from anyone, and he's saying that he feels honored to be able to preach the word, the truth. So if we just work backwards from verse 3, the preaching was manifested when? Before the ages began, in the hope of eternal life. So this is referring all the way, it's just, it's one conglomerate progressive paragraph. The The truth 1-1 is going to be revealed to the church so that their faith can be built. Mm-hmm. And their faith will be built in the hope because they are in hope. And the hope has been God's plan before the ages began. And God has broken into this current day and age, verse 3, and manifested his word through preaching. So this is a point to slow down and apply. What does this mean for us today? Does it mean that when we preach, God's hope, his word, his truth is manifested? It seems like it, and manifested in a positive sort of a way, a Christian sort of a way, would be... Just a physical appearing, a manifestation of something. So as the word is being preached, as truth is being preached, it's the hope of eternal life manifesting yeah. for people. Which is amazing that 
in following truth and preaching it and sharing it and being faithful to do so and for Titus especially it's bringing this active and again there's weird things that are said about manifesting uh, things today um, and it's taken out of context but here it's saying like a actual appearing of the hope of eternal life by yeah. preaching truth and that's it yeah so yeah I didn't even think about explaining that my thought is just you know the word, the presence of God manifests when we speak his truth. And if you've ever seen someone who's very passionate, very almost whimsical, I feel like my mind goes to certain preachers I've seen or people who have just been saved and they talk about Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like he's, he's in the room. And, and I think that we should never lose that. But we're kind of getting off topic here. <laughs> So we get down to verse five and Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So he makes it pretty straightforward explaining why he left him there and even why he's going to explain what he does next. Yeah. So what happens in verses one through five, uh, sorry, in verses one, five through nine. Yeah, so he begins with going through what qualifications need to be given to elders. And then our next paragraph onward, verse 10 through 16, looks at, I think, overseers next. Um, so I think 1 through 5 oh, looks at both <laughs> elders and overseers. Yes, I am incorrect. So verse 5 through 9 is first elders, then overseers. And then we have, thank you, that address in verse 10 onward that really looks at those who are operating very contrary to the descriptions that Paul's going to give for proper leadership of people. Yeah. So in verse 5, you have this major contrast here, right? So what is the main contrast we see here between um, Paul is telling Titus to appoint elders and overseers, and what should they be like? What should they not be like? So he makes a really clear distinction, mostly by implication of what the opposite of these things mean. Or he'll say, not this, but this. So any anyone must be, in verse 6, above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. So essentially, to look at the meaning of a few of those different words, above reproach is above above board, like above line would be what we would call it today. Like there's no room or instigation really to be had because there's no evidence of any wrongdoing or any of these things that are described. So above reproach is like highly above standard. Mm-hmm. No room for accusation. And then debauchery, uh, less popular of a word today, I would say. Uh, but debauchery really refers to things of like immorality and drunkenness, especially uh, debaucherous things. Again, back to that Vegas example, you could say like Las Vegas and gambling and all these different things are like forms of debauchery and, and all that stuff. That's usually what it's used for for us today. But he's saying to be above board, to 
um, have that family unit who is faithful and believers and to really be an example of godly leadership and living even in the family life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In the family life. I love that. Because, and that that's what Paul, Paul uses familial language. Um, he just goes straight for the family. He says, be above reproach, be a husband of one wife, talking about elders here. Um, and I'm not sure if he says the same thing about overseers. By the way, verses 1, 5 through 9, it seems like it's about two different groups of people. We have elders, and then we also have overseers. Mm-hmm. The qualifications for both are very, very similar. But what's yeah. the difference between an elder and an overseer? So an elder mainly would be someone who is, just as it sounds, like an elder in the church. In this context, it would probably be older people, to be honest. Uh, But specifically, it highlights those who have been foundational in the faith, have been in the faith for a substantial amount of time. And elders would be those who would make decisions, kind of like a council, And overseers have a very similar role, but just a little bit different. And you'd have to look up in different resources, maybe what some of the specifics could look like. But the point here is not to set up a hierarchy so much as um, proper leadership for different areas that need to be covered. So for example, with the elders, it says at the end of verse five, in every town as I directed you. So it seems like there's quite a bit of elders and it doesn't give that statement for overseers perhaps, Mm -hmm. but there seems to really be a need for elders in every town. And I'm not sure how many towns there were in Crete. It's an island, so I guess there's probably not tons. But with elders, the family unit is highlighted. With overseers, it actually doesn't come up, which is interesting. Uh, But either way, things like self-control, being above board, not being open to debauchery. So we have mentions of like being a drunkard or arrogant and being holy. That, of course, implies that you're not participating in immorality, immoral actions, Uh, those sorts of things. So similar, but a few differences between them. Yeah. And then one big thing. So elders and overseers, they, they're, they're given this contrast. For instance, be above reproach, do not be open to the charge of debauchery. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just like straight antithesis. Be above reproach, let no one. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Be able to blame you. Right. But, the thing is, so all of the positive aspects of what Titus is supposed to uh, raise up in these elders and overseers, all the positive aspects have this purpose to them. All the negative aspects, they are not given a purpose. Mm-hmm. So elders and overseers because are... Because they have no purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, their only purpose is dissension, and it's just a Lies. downward spiral. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, so here's a short list of the positive traits that Paul wants Titus to raise up in 1, 5 through 9. He wants to see people who are above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
Their children are believers. They're hospitable, lover of good. They're self-controlled and disciplined. They hold firm to the word. And at the very end, at the very end of verse 9, it says, these people have to do all these things so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Mm -hmm. So... Now, we see this word rebuke coming up yeah. quite a bit in the next paragraph. And how does Paul use that? Or do you want to slow down and talk about what I just... Yeah, so I was thinking specifically that word that you just mentioned, rebuke. So it comes up a good chunk in the next paragraph. And especially because it's describing those who are Cretans and follow in that Cretan lifestyle. Uh, not our good redeemed Cretans, you could say. And then also those called the circumcision party who are deceivers, empty talkers, upsetting whole families, a lot of different, very negative things. So first here in verse nine, it says, well, follow in sound doctrine and instruct people in sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it. But that purpose is going to be continued in verse 13, referring to these people that are contrary to the truth. To say, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. So there's a positive purpose that's being brought with rebuking them. And we had some curiosity about what rebuke is really supposed to mean in this instance. Because when I think rebuke, I think like shut them down. Like make sure that they are strongly deterred from doing anything ever again and don't let them speak in front of people like when i think rebuke i do not think of a positive experience however yeah the I actually, imagery i yeah. actually think of like negative experiences that i've had or things that i've seen yeah. the church do to just humiliate people like discourage them humiliate shame that's kind of what you think of with rebuke but the word that is used here, I can't remember what the Greek actually is. However, what it means, and each place that mentions rebuke, as well as other spots in the, the New Greek Testament. is something like elegko. Wow. Uh, we are not Greek scholars, <laughs> by the way. We're trying to get into seminary. Um, yes, but do not use this as language learning for your Greek is the rule of thumb. But what this means here is essentially the connotation of exposing something to the light, bringing the darkness into the light. And in other books of the Bible, especially like the letters of John talking about walking in the light, uh, will describe this as like bring exposure to the darkness. Let it not be darkness anymore and let it be light now. So what rebuke is actually supposed to mean here is bringing something from darkness into light. And what light is, is walking as the children of God, walking in truth, walking in sound doctrine and godliness, like what's being talked about. So when Paul is saying rebuke them, that they may walk in sound faith, sound doctrine, etc., he really does mean that, like, rebuke them so that the darkness may be exposed and brought into the light, that they would be encouraged to walk in the light and teach sound doctrine. Yeah. So there's a famous cross-reference here. When I say famous, how many of you listening... <laughs> Bible um, are famous. <laughs> yeah. How many of you listening have heard of John 3.16? Me. Yeah. Probably everyone. <laughs> 
John 3.16 in the ESV says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Mm. And that is the truth. But John 3.1-15 through 15 is this narrative piece. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about what it means to be filled with spirit in this physical world. Mm. Nicodemus is super confused. Jesus is saying, I come from somewhere where you cannot go. And what's funny about that, I mean, not funny, but interesting, is that Nicodemus, he's one of the Jewish law keepers. He goes and visits Jesus in the night. Yeah. Not in the daytime. He visits him in the night when this is happening. Go on. Yeah. So... John 3.16, all the way through 3.21, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Hey, uh, God loved the world. He gave his only son, that's me, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, And then John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then verses 18 through 21, we have this sort of metaphor that comes out of this narrative piece of John chapter 3. Um, Jesus says that the the light, <laughs> the light, <laughs> oh man, this, this is almost hard to explain. So I'll just try to read the text, keep it as simple as that. Verse 20, John 3, 20 says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this is the whole point. Like, Mm. either you do your works and... They're not carried out in God. They're carried out in selfishness and greed and pretty much any negative trait since the fall. Sometimes as humanity, we have these sparks of doing goodness. But in general, I feel like we just, our works aren't really that good in general. Yeah, and have bad motives too. Yeah. Or selfish motives. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is saying in verse 20, everyone who comes to the light... Like their negative works are going to be exposed. Mm-hmm. And and this is imagery of like, it's, it's really harkens back to Isaiah chapter six, where you have this, I think it's either Isaiah six or Ezekiel six. Maybe it's Ezekiel six, the coal on the lips. Isaiah six. Isaiah six. This is the, the coal, coal of, of Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. And what happens there is you have this coal, what Isaiah is in a vision or something like that. Yes. And he gets a vision of, God's throne room, cherubim, seraphim, his whole robe fills the temple and flows out of it. And this piece of coal touches Isaiah's lips and it changes him. So like Mm -hmm. the... (laughs) It actually exposes the world and a view of himself to bring him to repentance. Yes. Yeah. So that's just a real quick overview on Isaiah chapter six, like this <laughs> coal. And it's, don't think of coal as like this dark thing. Think of it as like a burning, huh? Or Santa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like a burning bright coal and actually it, uh, transfers its, well, the, the, 
what what it's understood as in Isaiah six is the refining power of the coal, like yeah. the purity of it is transferred over to Isaiah. Um, and then Isaiah being a prophet of the Lord, his mouth is made clean. So then what he's going to speak is going to be the truth. Um, anyways, we've gotten down a beautiful rabbit hole. So when Paul uses these words rebuke in Titus, we have there at uh, Titus 1.9, something similar in one eleven. These people must be silenced. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. There are two groups of people. Um, and then in verse 13, rebuke these people sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Um, so rebuke means just to expose, to show them that they're not all that much. And, mm-hmm. and really to show them that like what they're doing isn't meaningful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have meaning. Um, whereas what comes from God is meaningful, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that word rebuke, it's supposed to make us think of that. Something similar is talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, talking about pretty much the church exposing darkness, Mm. um, exposing negative traits, and that's talking about accountability. So rebuking just means holding someone accountable. Yeah. So if I were to rebuke you... (laughs) (laughs) Would be to bring something to the light to be able to walk yeah. better in it. So it could be like let's say if there is a conflict even in a relationship and obviously you want to examine oneself first as well in doing this, but the hope in that would be to bring something forward that's something that let's say your spouse is unaware of that it would be brought to light and exposed and then changed. Yeah. And at the risk of taking more time here, I want to slow down and talk about, you know, what, what is like the contemporary application to this, um, to rebuking. And what i what i'm thinking about is actually our culture in america in most of the west today actually like mm-hmm. you know as we're talking about this i just thought about how the dating scene in you know just just Anywhere. the west um and i i think yeah a lot of places in in the world it's not about dating it's not about getting to know someone seeing if you'll be a good fit. Dating oftentimes today, a lot of times outside of the church, it seems to just be about hooking up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sleeping together. And and that's, it's just so eerily relevant to Crete, the place mm-hmm. that's like, man, you don't want to be called a Cretan even today. It means you're just a vile little wretch. <laughs> Yeah, not good. And I mean, we need to be rebuked. Our works need to be exposed today, and we need to be discipled. Um, so that that's one thing I thought of is just, you know, in in the U.S., like we're so reliant on. I know I know a lot of people who are reliant on alcohol, who are reliant on 
nicotine who are reliant on relationships and who need to like fill the void and also mm-hmm. people who are just reliant on screens um we have so many things that we're reliant on and i think that we just sometimes need to be lifted up and mm-hmm. reminded that we can actually be active and faithful and we can be godly and what is being godly it's actually being out in the world and making an impact um by the way for those of you who maybe are iGen listeners you can absolutely make a difference you can make an impact through tiktok you can make an impact through social media and for our older audience or listeners don't worry if you don't understand that just try <laughs> to not judge our iGen people we have to champion our youth. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we've kind of gotten off on this rabbit trail of being rebuked, but do you have a way to tie together that application point? Yeah, I think I can just maybe tie it together with some other descriptives that are here in 110 through... 16 and I think it would be good to move on to what this means for the rest of the church to kind of end us today. So with that atmosphere of what rebuking actually is supposed to mean and think about that cross-reference to John chapter 3 that Casey was talking about, how these people are described. So the circumcision party, which um interesting name of course but what this means is those that follow or want to add the levitical law circumcision anything along those lines to the gospel in order to be saved so trying to bring back some of these ordinances that were put away with the new covenant and putting that burden onto people in addition to the gospel the second group that we have mentioned here in verse 12 are the Cretans themselves. So you have like two opposite sides of the spectrum in a way. Those that are incredibly restrictive and trying to put on these specific requirements that were done away with and the opposite of those that anything goes. And how Paul brings those together is with saying, I think that it's in verse 15. Yeah. So to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. And he brings it together to say both of these groups in such opposite ways that this lies and lack of truth manifests itself are deceivers or in fact, like unbelieving by not sticking to the full of the gospel. And that is the root of what needs to be rebuked. It's not believing truth, either which way, either which side of this not sound doctrine infiltrating into the church or the surrounding community. And the heart of this, of Paul even saying these very blunt things, is not that these people would just be rebuked, exposed, kicked out, shamed, but that they would actually walk in the truth and not be described as like deceiving un believers actually yeah. uh so paul's heart for them is incredible here and in what he's passing on to titus it's not at all to say these people are horrible have nothing to do with them they're not worth your time it's they are worth knowing the truth and being brought into the light they're worth instead everything yeah they're worth all your time this is not a don't cast pearls to swine moment 
Yeah, absolutely not. He's very blunt about the characteristics, of course, because it's, it's fact, it's what's true. But these are people that can be transformed by the gospel and by truth yeah. that resounds in it. So that is the heart of these different qualifications for elders, overseers, and then the opposite, seeing what really needs to be corrected, what they're coming against, um, is that these people would eventually be brought into the fold and walk in truth, yeah. walk in the light. So, so what's that? I was just going to move on to chapter two unless you had something else. Well, I just want to... Maybe repeat that one more time. I think, you know, what you're saying is the the heart of Paul telling Titus to raise up elders and appoint overseers so that they may rebuke these people mm-hmm. who are Cretans in Crete. It's It's so that the Cretans can actually learn how to love each other. They can actually learn how to participate in in a society that will lift up that will be upbringing um Mm -hmm. and one thing i did want to point out really quickly is in 1 10 through 16 we're actually talking about two groups of people that need to be rebuked or corrected um in verse 10 and 11 it seems like we're pointing out the circumcision party It's, well, verse 10 says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, Mm -hmm. especially those of the circumcision party. And then in verse 13, Paul is saying, the testimony about the Cretans that they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy guttons, gluttons, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that testimony is true. So therefore, rebuke them that they may be sound in faith. So we're talking about the circumcision party who is those that want to add to the gospel essentially by going back to some of the ordinances of the old covenant so these are going to be jewish people who may or may not be believing in christ yeah maybe they want um like the food laws maybe they want to add circumcision which acts 15 already accounts for that goes through it the decision that that does not need to be added on for gentiles but actually circumcision party does refer to those that will say that they believe in christ but are also saying that they want to add these different things on as well Mm -hmm. yeah and anytime that you hear someone add the word and to jesus it's not true it's not true (laughs) it is not good yeah and this goes for, like, Jesus and tithing. That's a big one today. Of course you should tithe, you should give to the church, but that should be a response mm-hmm. of grace. Um, not a means to salvation. Yeah, it's not. There's you nothing else that's a means to salvation other than the free gift of Jesus. Yeah. And I think that, man, there's even a hot topic with that that we might dive into further at some other point in time, mm-hmm. but, like, there are a lot of people who want to see a new temple built in Israel. Um, you're giving me a look right now. <laughs> That's a can of worms. So there, we might might talk about that later, there but I are think a little much for now. Christians who believe that if we just build another temple in Israel, then Jesus will come back. And it's what's the word for that? Um, there's 
a few different categories that it could fall under. Usually that refers to a specific view of revelation, yeah. a dispensationalist, i.e. futurist view, which essentially means revelation is only going to take place in the future. Uh, history is divided up into different time periods, and Israel specifically has a very physical role in, quote, the end times. So temple needs to be rebuilt, physical reigning of the kingdom of Israel and temple reestablished, i.e. Levitical priesthood and sacrifices also as a part of it, which kind of sounds like Jesus and why would there be a need for the sacrificial system if Christ has already made that sacrifice? Yeah. So just some food for thought. And that's um, as far as we're going to dip our toes into that. Yeah, we might get to that another time. Yeah. But do not add the word <laughs> and to Jesus. Do not add it. So, so if you're doing that, or if you're a liar, a beast, or lazy glutton, then you need to be rebuked. Yes. And that just means that... Brought into the light. Yeah, you're going to be brought into the light. Um, in the last paragraph, it's actually really simple to cover this one. Yeah. We have a few groups of people... Uh, Paul's telling Titus, you teach sound doctrine. Who do you teach it to? Older men. Oh, and likewise, older women should be like that. Oh, and likewise, younger men should be like this. And then, Mm -hmm. like the younger men, you yourself, Titus, do this. And that at the very end, we have this bond servants and master's piece. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to say about this last paragraph? Yeah, so just a, a point with that. Um, like you were saying, likewise is repeated. So each person has a particular role, not just the elders and overseers. And you'll see a lot of similarities. And it makes sense with even the qualifications of an overseer in reference to the family unit and a familial society. Um, Each part of the family has a part to play in testifying by their actions, by their works, the good work of Christ in them and raising them up in truth. Uh, And you have older men, older women, younger women mentioned, as in the older women training them, then younger men. And it takes an aside as it says... Let's see. Likewise, urge the younger men, verse 6, to be self-controlled. And then in verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Um, Opponent may be put to shame. So Titus is grouped in with the younger men. men. So he is actually giving instruction and order to people that were older than him essentially and in jewish society someone who was around 30 uh, 30 years old would be when you could begin ministry that's also why we see jesus start his ministry at 30 and that would be considered still in the younger men category Mm -hmm. Uh, by that standard he was in the younger men part of society but he's given this training and instruction to be able to raise up the church and it reminds me a lot of what he'll say to Timothy in Second Timothy, also First Timothy, but let no one disregard you because of your age. And this isn't saying that, like, younger people go and rebuke your elders and do this and that. Not, not at all. Um, it is simply giving Titus the authority that is Christ's authority 
to be able to walk out in the ministry that God has called him to and that Paul has also raised him up in, in the faith. Um, so it's a godly standing. It's a godly thing that he calls out in him um, to teach the church how to walk in sound doctrine. So that's just something I think good to think about and to apply and also to see how we look at our younger generations. I mean, even like Casey and I, I'm 27, Casey is 31 right now. So we're like upper 20s, low 30s, but you know, we we're starting to get to that part in YWAM where we have a lot of people that are younger than us too and um, as you start getting older, you have to keep seeing like, how can I raise up and um, invest in those that are younger than myself, seeing them as valuable, seeing them as people that are carriers of God's word um, and the gospel to this world, because they're absolutely, they're, they're the people that are left after you. Um, and I think that that's how Paul sees Titus. That's how he sees Timothy and he sees what God has commissioned them to do. Yeah, yeah. So, all in all, I I think with this last paragraph that we're going to cover today, Titus 2, 1 through 10, we have these different people groups. And a lot of people will use these verses to sort of uh, justify, like roles for like a hierarchy yeah and and we're not even going to get into that because what the text says simply straightforward between every group of people likewise is likewise yeah so it's like oh just like the older men the older women should do this so it's like be all these things be sober-minded dignified self-controlled um, older women, oh yeah, be reverent, teach good things, do not be slanderers, mm-hmm. don't be slaves to too much wine, <laughs> train the younger women, so that, that likewise there, it's like, oh, shouldn't older women train younger men? Yes, likewise, and then likewise, younger men, be self-controlled, and that self-controlled is something that we see a lot here in this first part of Titus. Mm-hmm. It's going to be Titus one one through 2.10, we see self-controlled and the antithesis repeated, repeated, repeated. Yeah. And this, what you were saying about the structure of this epistle earlier on is that it seems to be Paul is really giving this application piece. How do you live out the theology uh, right here in one one through 2.10? And then 2.11 through the end of the book, he's actually going to give us that theology. Mm -hmm. So the theology that grace has appeared and this grace brought salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions and to be self-controlled. And Mm -hmm. there's a bit more to that. So we get to actually dive into that beautiful theology next week. And for now... Um, what is the main application, would you say? Be self-controlled. Rebuke. Expose, I think, in fallacies. Yeah, expose things to light and even consider what you think a rebuke actually is. It's something that we shouldn't just flippantly go around doing or even to think of a rebuke as something that is to shame people. It's ultimately to bring them into the lights, bring correction, bring guidance where it's needed. Yeah. So rebuking is part of building up the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's really for the sake of 
God's church, bringing us back to one one. His elect. Yeah. So we'll catch you guys next week for the rest of Titus. Yes. Thank you for joining us for the Bread and Butter Bible Podcast. And we'll see you next week for part two of Titus. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.